Dear friends, welcome. Uh, I'm Louis Begley. I'm the president of American Penn Center. Uh, we are extremely grateful to you for being here, and we're very grateful to Symphony Space and its board of directors for making this theater available to us tonight. And we are very grateful to Wynton Marcellus for the music he will play and for performing it, and to my colleagues for what they will read and say. Bosnia, a land of great natural beauty and rich in architectural, artistic, and literary tradition, has become the scene of brutal and sadistic violence that recalls the most infamous atrocities of World War II. In the midst of this horror, Bosnian writers have continued to be active, and artists and writers in besieged Sarajevo have not lost the will to continue what they've always been, the keepers of the flame of civilization that must not be extinguished. We will help Bosnian writers to survive physically this terrible winter by sending them the entire proceeds of the sale of tickets to this event, as well as any additional contributions and gifts from you and others. Almost as important is your presence here. It is a precious expression of solidarity, a message to our fellow writers of Bosnia and Sarajevo that they have not been forgotten, that their suffering is vivid in our minds and sears our hearts. Now please don't leave after Jamaica Kincaid has spoken. Paul Berman is going to read an important statement and then I will re remain to return to speak to you for just one moment. I'm Wynton Marcellus, and I'll be playing with Mr. Eric Reed tonight on the piano. And we're going to start off with a dirge that the musicians used to play in New Orleans. We'll still play sometimes, but it was played around the turn of the century, and it's entitled Flee as the Bird to the Mountain.
Thank you very much. This next piece is a section of a, a piece that we did in original composition done in the style of Afro-American church service. And this particular part is entitled Introduction to Prayer and Prayer. And prayer, and the prayer is just a prayer of affirmation. It says, to thee, O Lord, we say yes this day. And it goes on and on just mainly to say yes to life and yes to humanity, which is why we're here tonight. Thank you very much. And finally, we'd like to play something that is affirmative because it swings. And it's entitled The Tomcat Blues. And it was composed by Jelly Roll Martin.
want to thank uh, Wynton Marsalis and the pianist for starting us off in such a wonderful way, but the rest of the evening is words. And I'm privileged to be the first of a, a wonderful group of writers. Well, the mics are supposed to work. <laughs> now, I think they work now. Now come the words, is what I said. <clears throat> I, uh, each of us who will read tonight, uh, the many uh, marvelous writers who have gathered here to express their support for writers in Bosnia and Sarajevo, have uh, made their own choice of what they want to read. Uh, there are so many things we would like to read, and uh, I would... I'm starting with a very special choice that has a great deal of meaning to me. It's a short text by a very great 20th century writer uh, who would have identified himself until the time he died prematurely in 1989 as a Yugoslav writer. He is the great uh, Yugoslav writer of the post-war period. He was one of the great writers of the 20th century. Now, there is no Yugoslavia, and in fact, it's difficult since he represents, in a sense, uh, something very special about U former Yugoslavia, as we now have to call it. Uh, he was half Hungarian Jewish and uh, half uh, Montenegrin origin. I'm speaking, of course, of Danilo Kish, who was a friend of mine and one of the writers uh, I've most admired uh, uh, in this part of the 20th century. In 1983, uh, Danilo Kish wrote a uh, text on nationalism. I often think uh, and th that if Danilo had lived uh, later than 1989, that what is going on in former Yugoslavia now would, would have killed him. He's a great hero in Sarajevo, although he's not a Bosnian. Uh, he wouldn't have identified himself in those terms. And no, no one in former Yugoslavia that we can identify with would have. Uh, he thought he was Yugoslav and proud to be that, which, of course, has become impossible now. But uh, his writings and his genius, because he is the great writer of, from that part of the world of the last 30 years, uh, are very admired in Sarajevo. And in fact, the first time that I went there in, in uh, April of this year, uh, one of the things that interested people most in me was that I had had the privilege of being a friend of Danilo Kish's. Uh, this is a text which he wrote in 1983, before, five, six, seven years before the horrors now in full sway began. Nationalism is first and foremost paranoia collective and individual paranoia. As collective paranoia, it results from envy and fear, and most of all, from the loss of individual consciousness. This collective paranoia is therefore simply an accumulation of individual paranoias at the pitch of paroxysm. If in the framework of a social order, an individual is not able to express himself, because the order in question is not congenial and does not stimulate him as an individual 
or because it thwarts him as an individual. In other words, does not allow him to assume an entity of his own. He is obliged to search for this entity outside identity and outside the so-called social structure. Thus he becomes a member of a pseudo-Masonic group that seems to pose problems of epical importance as its goals and objectives. The survival and prestige of a nation or nations, the preservation of tradition and the nation's sacrosanct values. Invested with such a secret semi-public or public mission, an other becomes a man of action, a tribune of the people, a semblance of an individual. Once we have him cut down to size, isolated from the herd and out of the pseudo-Masonic lodge where he had installed himself or been installed by others, we are faced with an individual without individuality, a nationalist. The nationalist is, as a rule, equally insignificant as a social being and as an individual. Outside the commitment that he has made, he is a non-entity. He neglects his family, his job, usually in an office, literature, if he is a writer, his social responsibilities, since these are all petty compared with his messianism. Needless to say, he is, by choice, a potential fighter, biding his time. Paraphrasing Sartre on anti-Semitism, nationalism is, quote, a comprehensive and free choice, a global attitude not only towards other nations but toward people in general, towards history and society. It is at once a passion and a worldview. The nationalist is by definition an ignoramus, Nationalism is the line of least resistance, the easy way out. The nationalist is untroubled. He knows or thinks he knows what his values are. That's to say the values of the nation he belongs to, ethical and political. He's not concerned in others. They're no concern of his. It's other people, other nations, other tribes. They don't even need investigating. The nationalist sees other people in his own image, as nationalists, a comfortable standpoint, fear and envy, a commitment and engagement needing no effort. Not only is hell other people, in a national key, of course, but also whatever is not mine, Serbian, Croatian, French, is alien to me. Nationalism is an ideology of banality, as such, nationalism is a totalitarian ideology. Nationalism is, moreover, and not only in the etymological sense, the last remaining ideology and demagogy that addresses itself to the people. Writers know this best. That's why every writer who declares that he writes about the people and for the people who claims to surrender his individual voice to the higher interests of the nation or tribe should be suspected of nationalism. Nationalism is also kitsch. In its Serbo-Croatian variant, it takes the form of squabbling about the national origin of gingerbread heart cookies. 
As a rule, the nationalist doesn't know a single foreign language or any variant of his own, nor is he familiar with other cultures. They're no concern of his. But there's more to it than this. If he does know foreign languages, which means that as an intellectual he has an insight into the cultural heritage of other nations, great or small, they serve only to let him draw analogies to the detriment of those others. Kitsch and folklore. Folkloric kitsch, if you prefer, are nothing but camouflaged nationalism, a fertile field for nationalist ideology. The upsurge of folklore studies, both in this country and in the world at large, is due to nationalism, not anthropology. Insisting on the famous couleur locale is likewise outside an artistic context, that is, unless in the service of artistic truth, a covert form of nationalism. Nationalism is thus, in the first place, negativity. Nationalism is a negative spiritual category because it thrives on denial and by denial. We are not what they are. We are the positive pole, they the negative. Our values, national, nationalist, have no function except in relation to the nationalism of those others. We are nationalist, but they are even more so. We slit throats when we must, but they do too, and even more. We are drunkards, they are alcoholics. Our history is proper only in relation to theirs. Our language is pure only in relation to theirs. Nationalism lives by relativism. There are no general values, aesthetic, ethical, and so on, only relative ones. And it is principally in this sense that nationalism is reactionary. All that matters is to be better than my brother or half-brother, the rest are no concern of mine. To jump not very high, but higher than him, the others do not count. This is what we have defined as fear. Others are allowed to catch us up, even to overtake us. The goals of nationalism are always attainable. Attainable because modest, modest because mean. You don't go jumping or shot-putting to reach your own best, but to be the only others who matter. The nationalist fears no one but his brother. But him he fears with an existential pathological dread for the chosen enemy's victory is his own total defeat, the annihilation of his very being. As a shirker and a non-entity, the nationalist does not aim high. Victory over the chosen enemy, the other, is total victory. This is why nationalism is the ideology of hopelessness, of feasible victory. The nationalist fears no one, no one save God, but his God is made to his own measure. It is his double sitting at the next table, his own brother as impotent as himself, the pride of the family, a family entity, the conscious and organized section of the family and the nation. To be a nationalist is therefore to be an individual with no obligations. It is to be a coward who will not admit his cowardice, a murderer 
who represses his murderous proclivities without being able to master them, who does not dare kill except in effigy or in the anonymity of a crowd, a malcontent who, fearing the consequences of rebellion, dares not rebel, the spitting image of the anti-Semite. Whence we wonder such cowardice, such an attitude, such an upsurge of nationalism in this day and age. Oppressed by ideologies on the margin of social changes, crammed and lost between antagonistic ideologies, unequal to individual rebellion because it is denied to him, the individual finds himself in a quandary, a vacuum. Although he is a social being, he takes no part in social life. Although he is an individualist, individuality has been refused him. What is left but to seek his social being elsewhere? Nationalism is the frustrated expression of this kind of individualism, at once ideology and anti-ideology. As I said, this is a text which means a great deal to people in Sarajevo. It has been quoted back to me a number of times, um, along with another key text, uh, Ivo Andrich's story, Letter from 1920, as very uh, prophetic of what started to happen uh, in 1991. Uh, the, the murder that is repressed, of course, has become a vast uh, collective murder, uh, which Danilo Kish did not, uh, one can almost say happily, live to see. But his denunciation of the vulgarity, the inanity, uh, and the horror of nationalism uh, seems very prescient indeed. Thank you very much. I'm Don DeLillo, and I'm going to read a poem by Big New Herbert. It's called Report from the Besieged City. Too old to carry arms and fight like the others. They graciously gave me the inferior role of chronicler. I record, I don't know for whom, the history of the siege. I am supposed to be exact, but I don't know when the invasion began. 200 years ago? In December? In September? Perhaps yesterday, at dawn. Everyone here suffers from a loss of the sense of time. All we have left is the place, the attachment to the place. We still rule over the ruins of temples, specters of gardens and houses. If we lose the ruins, nothing will be left. I write as I can in the rhythm of interminable weeks. Monday, empty storehouses. A rat became the unit of currency. Tuesday, the mayor murdered by unknown assailants. Wednesday, negotiations for a ceasefire. The enemy has imprisoned our messengers. Thursday, after a stormy meeting, a majority of voices 
rejected the motion of the spice merchants for unconditional surrender. Friday, the beginning of the plague. Saturday, our invincible defender, N.N., committed suicide. Sunday, no more water. We drove back an attack at the eastern gate called the Gate of the Alliance. All of this is monotonous. I know it can't move anyone. I avoid any commentary. I keep a tight hold on my emotions. I write about the facts. Only they, it seems, are appreciated in foreign markets. Yet, with a certain pride, I would like to inform the world that, thanks to the war, we have raised a new species of children. Our children don't like fairy tales. They play at killing. Awake and asleep, they dream of soup, of bread and bones, just like dogs and cats. In the evening, I like to wander near the outposts of the city, along the frontier of our uncertain freedom. I look at the swarms of soldiers below their lights. I listen to the noise of drums, barbarian shrieks. Truly, it is inconceivable. The city is still defending itself. The siege has lasted a long time. The enemies must take turns. Nothing unites them except the desire for our extermination. Goths, Tartars, Swedes, troops of the emperor, regiments of the transfiguration. Who can count them? The colors of their banners change like a forest on the horizon, from delicate birds yellow in spring, through green, through red, to winter's black. And so, in the evening, released from facts, I can think about distant, ancient matters. For example, our friends beyond the sea. I know they sincerely sympathize. They send us flour, lard, sacks of comfort and good advice. They don't even know their fathers betrayed us, our former allies at the time of the second apocalypse. Their sons are blameless. They deserve our gratitude. Therefore, we are grateful. They have not experienced a siege as long as eternity. Those struck by misfortune are always alone. The defenders of the Dalai Lama, the Kurds, the Afghan mountaineers. Now, as I write these words, the advocates of conciliation have won the upper hand over the party of inflexibles. A normal hesitation of moods. Fate still hangs in the balance. Cemeteries grow larger. The number of defenders is smaller. Yet the defense continues. It will continue to the end. And if the city falls but a single man escapes, he will carry the city within himself on the roads of exile. He will be the city. We look in the face of hunger, the face of fire, face of death, worst of all, the face of betrayal. And only our dreams 
have not been humiliated. Zbigniew Herbert, 1982, translated by John Carpenter and Bogdana Carpenter. Thank you. I'm Maureen Howard, and I'm going to read from Ivo Andrich's The Bridge on the Drina. This is adapted from The Bridge on the Drina, and the time of this piece is the first decades of this century. The tension known to the outside world as the annexation crisis which had cast its shadow over the bridge and the town beside it rapidly subsided. Somewhere out there, a peaceful solution had been found by the interested parties. The frontier, always so inflammable, for once did not flare up. The army which had filled the town and the frontier villages in the first days of spring began to withdraw. The bridge remained mined. But no one gave it a thought except the Alihoja, whose ancestor, the Grand Vizier, built the bridge in the 16th century to link the two parts of the empire and, for the love of God, make easier the passage from west to east and from east to west. Prices which had leapt up the previous autumn because of the number of soldiers remained unchanged, but with likelihood of further rises. A Serbian and Muslim bank opened. The people made use of money orders like medicine. Now everybody incurred debts more freely. One could feel from afar the unhealthy fluctuations of the exchanges. The sudden slackening of tension did not result in a real appeasement. It left to the Serbs a concealed disillusionment, to the Muslims its distrust and fear of the future. The expectations of great events began to grow once more. The people hoped for something and were afraid of something. Everyone asked for better or trembled in fear of worse. The older people still regretted the sweet tranquility which in Turkish times had been regarded as the main aim of existence and the most perfect expression of public and private life and which still existed in the first decades of the Austrian administration. But these were few. All others demanded an animated, noisy, and exciting life. The coffee merchant obtained a gramophone, a clumsy wooden box with a big tin trumpet in the shape of a bright blue flower. His son changed the records and the needles and was continually winding this raucous contraption, which echoed from both banks and made the copia at the topmost arch of the bridge quiver. He had been forced to buy it, not to be left behind by his competitors, for now gramophones could be heard in the humblest cafes where the guests sat under lime trees, on the grass, or on brightly lit balconies and talked in low voices. Everywhere the gramophone ground and churned out Turkish marches, Serbian patriotic songs, and arias from Viennese operettas, for men would no longer go where there was neither noise, glitter, nor movement. So those years passed in a succession of greater or lesser sensations. 
Then it came to the autumn of 1912. Then 1913 with the Balkan Wars and news of the Serbian victories. It was still pleasant to sit on the copia in the noonday sun. Time, it seemed, was holding its breath. Just then it happened, before the literates in the town could find their way through contradictory reports, the war between Turkey and the four Balkan states had already broken out and followed the well-worn path across the Balkans. Somewhere far away in the world, the dice had been thrown, the battles fought. It needed time, effort, before the townspeople understood. Not even in dreams did frontiers change so quickly. The first summer days of 1913 were rainy and oppressive. On the Kapia by day sat the Muslims of the town, morose and disconsolate. About a dozen elderly men grouped around a younger one who read from them, read to the from them to the read to them from the newspapers. Hiding their emotion, they bent over the map which showed the future partition of the Balkan Peninsula. They looked at the paper and saw nothing in those curving lines, for geography was in their blood. Who will get Uskub? asked one old man of the youth who was reading. Serbia. Oh. And who will get Salonika? Greece. Oh, oh, oh. These were deep, stifled sighs, lost with the tobacco smoke, which drifted through their mustaches into the summer air. At the end of June, a group of students from Sarajevo arrived in the town, and in July, students of law, medicine, and philosophy come home from the universities of Vienna, Prague, Graz, and Zagreb. The students brought with them new words and jokes, new dances from the balls of previous winters, and especially new books, Serbian, Czech, and German. Even peasants' sons and the children of petty artisans now went to university. These were no longer students of the occupation, mild and timid, devoted to their studies in the narrowest way. But neither were they the ordinary town dandies of an earlier time, future landowners and shopkeepers who at a certain period in their lives wasted themselves on the copia until their family said, marry him off and stop his squalling. These were a new sort of young man come back from great cities, intoxicated with proud audacity, carried away by ideas about the rights of people to freedom and of individuals to dignity. There had been, and there would be again, starlight nights on the bridge, but there had never been such young men who kept vigil on the copia. That was a generation of rebel angels these sons of peasants, traders, artisans from a remote Bosnian town who had obtained an entry to the world and the great illusion of freedom. Life, that word came up often in their conversations, as it did in literature and politics of the time, always written in capital letters. Life stood before them as a field of action for their intellectual curiosity and their sentimental exploits, which knew no limits. Only the strongest among them threw themselves into action with the fanaticism of fakers and were burnt up like flies. Every generation has its own illusions. This generation, now discussing social and political questions under the stars, above the waters of the Drina, 
was richer only in illusions. They had the feeling of both lightening the first fires of a new civilization and extinguishing the last flickers of one that was burning out. What would be said of them was that there had not been a generation which dreamed of life more boldly, of enjoyment, of freedom, and who were presently to receive less of life, more of death. But in those summer days of 1913, all was still undetermined. Everything appeared as an exciting new game on that ancient bridge, which shone in the moonlight, clean and unalterable, strong and lovely in its perfection, stronger than all that time might bring and men imagine or do. The literary bridge imagined by Andrish in his grand book is destroyed in 1914. The legendary but very real and beautiful bridge in Mostar, built in the 16th century by Suleiman the Magnificent, was destroyed on November 9, 1993. This is an original piece. It's called Trouble in the East, Four Choruses of Blues Changes for Sarajevo. One, darkness is the favorite place for criminal activities. It is in that bottomless pitch blackness that the hard blues is played. In Bosnia, the snow falls. It is the snow only those who are warm can feel sweet sentiment towards. In Bosnia, the corpses are stacking up, but they lack the gruesome hysteria achieved by the cinematic grand guignol of our popular entertainments. In Bosnia, death scratches its razored nails across juggler veins with no distinctions as to age or gender, class or education, health or frailty. In some distinct way, all of this connects us to the immemorial times that startle like a well of blood gushing from the ground. That gushing blue-red sound of hubris spatters us from our various states of slumber as we realize that a moral eclipse is in place and there is darkness on the delta. It is there, in that darkness, that the rabid moles take over, not only killing, but replicating themselves through infection. Two, what should always haunt the soul are the circumstances of death. The circumstances determine the distance between stoicism and outrage. In a novel I am writing, one of the characters observes that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all tragic heroes because even he, who knows without a doubt that he will soon be at his father's side, finds it so hard to face the finality of human death that he cries out on the cross, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? 
In that way, perhaps better than in any other tale, we are told what death really is, something that terrifies even the gods if they dare take on human form. In the case of Jesus, he knew he was to be sacrificed, though he trembled and asked that the bitter cup pass his lips, permission denied. Was Jesus outraged at the pain of death, or did, his heart, or did his hard blues rise up from the feeling of betrayal? Was it the condition of being tormented, tormented by the soldiers of a brawny civilization and forced to drag the weighty structure upon which he would be crucified, or was it the sense that a greater disengaged force was looking on as he suffered every stroke of a whip every thorn into his flesh, every splinter as he dragged his cross, every sharp stone under his feet, each swing of a hammer against the spikes, each second of agony on the meat rack of crucifixion. Both passions of outrage were probably fused in the gruel of blood and flesh. Three, that gruel is served over and over. It is standard fare on the menu of existence. There, every one of the 12 months of the year that are the 12 bars of the blues we hear singing the lamentations and the celebrations of human meaning. A blues central to the tale of the species is the blues of inevitable demise. On some certain morning or afternoon or night in the spring, summer, fall, or winter, everyone we know or have ever heard of will slip on the invisible nightshirt of eternity. If they arrive as casket passengers in the bone orchard of the burying ground, all will, as my grandmother said, have breakfast with the moles. Four, in this eclipse, in this darkness on the delta, with the moles criminally rabid and reproducing themselves through infection, we must ask ourselves where we are in this geography of spiritual dimness, where standing still is suicidal, where walking is dangerous, and where running almost guarantees the crippling fall that precedes being devoured or infected. Is it possible to sip this gruel of blood and flesh stoically, saying that these feuding little places outside the grand frame of Western civilization will have to crucify themselves over and over until adding a philosophical bend to the soup spoon, well, until they get our religion. It is far, far too easy to do that, to accept the spiritual bed sores that come of winding the tattered sheets of Rip Van Winkle's strategies around our souls until they become comatose. Perhaps the blue steel fact, as always, is that we must aspire to the burning sensation of becoming the stars open up the blood-encrusted morality of mourning. No matter what time of day it is, that is not easy either, for the air is very, very thin, the killing is inevitable, and the fall in the hard blues air is surely one to death. Thank you. that are the 12 bars of the blue
Linda. Something sinister. And grace. Time. They did not blame. about another place and another time, and yet it is also about Bosnia in present time. The title of the text is Death. The game required that the little girls freeze when the sound hit them. Not a muscle would twitch. They did not blink. They did not move. Not even when a shout or a stone hurled against the fence to simulate a rifle shot or a shard of glass shattering against the wall caught them in full flight or jumping, carrying water, combing their hair, or in the strangest of positions, unable to hold their balance for very long. And it had happened, not too long before, that two of them were caught, perched on a window ledge, about to fall. Their thin legs could no longer hold. In a few moments, they would fall backward. Luckily, a hawking fellow who was just passing by managed to catch them in time. Sometimes, as the rules required, they remained still for up to an hour in the position in which the signal caught them. Hands raised, leg in the air, neck twisted or back bent. The desire, no matter how strong, to complete the movement did not prevail. They were dead. No temptation could have awakened them. The little girls had invented playing mannequin. The motionlessness of these little statues, soiled and dragged, simulated the elegance of a world that they imagined still retained an ideal of refinement and grace. Yet, the game could have had another name. 
The way they froze almost naked, skeletal, the way they stopped suddenly and no longer moved at all, holding their breath, presaged something sinister. As he watched them, the boy had more than once asked himself whether their game did not attract, even hasten, such evil. He seemed to feel the presence of the barrel of a hidden gun taking aim nearby, behind a wall or from a watchtower. In the moment the children got the signal, the shout that imitated a rifle shot, they could not know that one of them had been gunned down. That could not take in that the rifle shot was real. The fall of the target was not part of the game. The boy thought he could see the muzzle of the gun or the smaller muzzle of a revolver hidden a few steps away. Suddenly, given the signal for a different game, a game that would have amused the soldiers terribly. The day when the two little girls were caught by the sound of the window on the window ledge near the roof of the dormitory, stacked with beds, and were about to lose their balance but were saved in the nick of time by liquor, the gigantic cousin with curly red hair, now also tinged with white, the boy was sure that this time disaster had struck. Petrified, he did, op did not open his eyes for several seconds. The two brunettes were running again. They appeared frightened, it is true, but they were incredible, as it may seem, alive and jolly. All around, on the other side of the fence, flowers were blooming. Spring had come, you could hear birds. He had no way of recognizing them. He could not name them. No one had found the time to talk to him about flowers and birds, nor about the many insects that had come out with the sun. He was leaning against one of the fence posts. His eyes closed. He was abandoning himself to the laziness that was growing inside him. He felt very hot and unbuttoned his shirt down to his waist. It was a very colorful shirt made of remnants of clothes sewn together at random. Mother had gotten hold of them who knows where. He had undone the two buttons, a pink one from an eider-down blanket at the neck, and the other sewn on low at the waist, big and black from an overcoat, as Leaker kept repeating to make fun of him. He opened the shirt to uncover his thin, bony, and yellowish chest. He stayed there, his eyes closed, the lids quivering and pulsating with the light. The sun warmed his slender and as yet unformed rigs 
vulnerable to the sting of the bullet about to explode. He got it right in the chest. The first thought, even before he opened his eyes, there was no sound, there was no shot, nothing. He could hear the buzzing nearby on his chest. He felt the needle buried deep in the place where it had entered. He thrashed his arms about convulsively. He screamed, this was death. It would not last more than a few moments. Everything was collapsing. There was no more time. He ran, pale, stabbed a dead man with black, frightened eyes. He raised his hands, trying to protect himself, stumbling, rocking backward. He whirled around a few times. The shirt had completely fallen off his shoulders. He turned around, continued to run without looking back. He jumped. The earth opened under each one of his lips. He ran with his mouth open, exhausted, sweaty, to catch the final moments to arrive in time. The pain grew. The poison was rapidly working its way up. He would be too late. He hurled himself to the door of the barracks and burst inside. His uncle was gazing out as usual to, to the boards. The old woman was praying in a corner. They would not be able to help him. They had not even seen him enter. He staggered. Soon his strength would ebb. He knew it. He ran next door, then to the neighbors on the other side, then to others still down the corridor. He was suffocating. His cheeks were burning, sticky with tears. He ran out, went around the courtyard, sobbing, desperate. Time was passing faster and faster. He went to the other bags. He found her at last. He managed to show her the swelling on his chest where he had been hit. He was gasping. He begged her, quick, quick, everything must be tried immediately. She could still save him maybe he had been shot at shot at hit stung but the rough hand was stroking his head to calm him down she always wasted time mother in stupid caresses and look he no longer had the strength he was fading fast not even she understood the disaster. It's nothing. A bee. A bee. Nothing. Her calm voice terrified him. Not even she understood. And so he was about to look up to scream when he heard behind him a wild familiar laugh. It was Cousin Lika, Gefine. That hulking fellow had become more and more emaciated. Now he looked like a miserable wretch, but he still had strength. He seemed to have gathered at all of it, that off. 
and that torrent of laughter that came crashing over him. I'm David Reif. Um, read, I've returned from Sarajevo about uh, eight, nine days ago. And what I'd like to do is read a text that describes some of what it's like to be there. In the Lion Cemetery in Sarajevo, an old man asked me, why do Americans not drop the atom bomb on the Serbs? A moment later, a mortar bomb exploded about 500 meters away. The mourners, they'd come to bury a 14-year-old boy killed by a sniper two days before, ducked, or rather, went through a kind of pantomime of ducking for cover, since apart from the now battle-starred statue of the lion and the plinth on which it stood in the center of the cemetery, there was no cover to speak of. Even the headstones in Sarajevo were made of plywood these days, which, the gravediggers will tell you, is of half the thickness it was six months ago. By Sarajevo standards, the Lion Cemetery is safer than other local graveyards. It is not nearly so exposed as the soccer pitch nearby, converted into a cemetery by the local authorities in the fall of 92 to take the overthrow from the Kosovo Hospital morgue. There, the chances of being hit are really quite high. Every part of Sarajevo is dangerous, almost no place out of reach, either of mortar or artillery fire of the snipers, but the cemeteries are not being fired upon as part of some generalized assault. Sarajevo is a bowl and small, and the Serb soldiers can see their targets quite clearly, as a visit to their positions will demonstrate. The morning before I set out for the Lion Cemetery, a French friend, a combat photographer of long experience, told me, there are two ways of photographing funerals, on your feet with the living or on your knees with the dead. He might as well have been talking about the ways of thinking about Sarajevo or the war in Bosnia generally. When one is in the city, its reality is overwhelming. If the press corps there has, as the demeaning phrase goes, gone native, it is not simply because the reporters here have been frightened half out of their wits, but because the situation seems so starkly simple. A European city is being reduced to nothing, Carthage in slow motion, with an audience and a taped record. Nothing, not the complex history of the region, the errors of the Bosnian Muslim authorities, or the sometimes justified fears of the Bosnian Serbs, can mitigate the crime that has taken place and goes on as I write this. It was a conceit of journalists made up partly of corporate self-regard, partly of an unexamined belief in progress and in the idea that Europe, despite its sanguinary history, was a civilized place, that if people elsewhere could only be told about what was happening in Sarajevo, if they were only to see on their TV screens the images of children hit by dum-dum sniper bullets as they played in their apartments and people massacred as they queued for bread, they would want their governments to do something. The hope was that an informed world would urge its governments to prevent not this war, for it's not a war, but this killing, to ensure that, unlike the Jews and the Armenians, the Bosnian Muslims were not either massacred or expelled from their homes. This was an error, as one discovers when one leaves Sarajevo and returns home. 
Every journalist who's covered the Bosnian war has had the experience of being told that Bosnia is too complicated. Even one's educated, politically aware friends insist that the whole situation, however tragic, is just so hard. Thus do the living reply when one returns upright to their kingdom after a prolonged stint in the land of the dead that Sarajevo is fast becoming. And thus are confuted nearly 50 years of liberal assumptions, especially the belief that after the Holocaust of European Jewry, similar events would not be tolerated again. As it turns out, though, that never again simply means the Jews will never again suffer the same fate at the hands of Nazis. Speaking at the opening of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, President Clinton spoke of deploying memory to forestall future holocausts. But of course, memory is no more useful a weapon than information. People can, as we should have known in this age of information, keep all kinds of things in their heads. While knowing what is happening in Bosnia may be a necessary precondition for action, it's anything but a sufficient one. Mostly, I suspect, People switch channels when the images of Sarajevo appear on their TV screens. Had there been TV cameras at Auschwitz or on the plateau of Anatolia, the view of response would probably have been the same. Where information is not bred indifference, it's bred casuistry. Modern people who would not for one second accept the premise that their history should determine their future are pleased to insist that what is going on in Bosnia is a centuries-long civil war that when all is said and done must be allowed to burn itself out. This natural disaster theory leads to the conclusion that nothing can be done for the Bosnians except, am I alone in believing that the image is drawn from zoology, the creation of safe havens, in other words, reserves for an endangered European species. To do otherwise, one is told, is to court disaster. One might as well have tried to cap Krakatoa, and if this argument does not carry the day, the next to be advanced is that all sides are guilty. As David Owen, the EC's principal negotiator, has put it, the Bosnian conflict is a civil war with elements of aggression. If no side is innocent or guilty, then even a decision to lift the arms embargo against the Bosnian government becomes little more than a way of ensuring higher body counts. And the obvious conclusion drawn from this plague on all their houses argument is that the Bosnian government side, in reality, the civilian population of Sarajevo and much of central Bosnia and the Drina Valley enclaves must do the lion's share of the dying. For a long time, the landscape of Sarajevo was as pitted with dreams as with shellfire. People have grown wearier and more cynical there now. Journalists who were once greeted as trusted friends and whom in the Sarajevan placed such hopes are greeted more dispassionately. It is not that the foreigners didn't tell the story of Sarajevo. They did, but nothing happened. So now their presence, our presence, I should say, is as much an irritant to people in Sarajevo as a boon. Another safari, an acquaintance asked me when I arrived in this city last winter. What do you hope to see this time? More corpses, more destruction? We should charge you admission. All this was said with reasonable equanimity, but implacably. The media attention, my friend believed, had done no good. Most of the time, and though I continue to return to Sarajevo and am there in my dreams, even when guiltily I leave the city for a time, I am inclined to agree with him. A lot of dreams have died there in the past year. Dreams that the world has a conscience, 
that Europe is a civilized place, that there is justice in human affairs as well as sorrow. It should be no surprise that the old millenarian dream that knowledge and truth would set us free would die there as well. Reality, as it turns out, is better apprehended in the Lyons Cemetery under fire than in the Palais des Nations in Geneva or in the United Nations in New York, much as we might wish it otherwise. Thank you. Miller, and this is a <coughs> short uh, memoir of a time in uh, Yugoslavia. For me, the Yugoslav catastrophe raises an especially terrible and sometimes comical memory. In the 60s, I presided over the Congress of International Pen held in Bled a beautiful resort town built around a crystal clear lake high in the lovely mountains of Slovenia. Bled had been the watering hole for generations of Europeans, a fairy tale place. It was already more than a decade since Tito had broken with Moscow. Yugoslav Marxist intellectuals were remarkably open in their criticisms of the economy and politics of the country that the system needed deep changes was taken for granted, and new concepts were being floated that would free individual initiative while retaining the social gains of the communist system. Worker ownership of factories was being tried, and identical consumer products like radios were given different names in order to spur competition between factories in the hope of raising quality and lowering prices. Yugoslavia was prodding the limits of socialism, it seemed, and to come here from the dictatorships of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, not to mention Russia, was to experience the shock of fresh air. Yugoslavia in the 60s seemed filled with enormous energy. They were the proudest, friendliest people I had met in Europe, and the most frank and open. There was one taboo, unmentioned but obvious, the ethnic nationalism which Tito had ruthlessly suppressed. I know, of course, that Slovenians, Bosnians, Serbs, Croatians, Montenegrins, and other nationalities, I knew this, uh, made up the Yugoslav delegation to the Congress. But since to me they all looked alike and conversed in a mutually understood language, their differences might be no more flammable than those separating Welsh and English or maybe even Texans and Minnesotans. And when, out of curiosity, I would ask an individual if he was Croatian or Slovenian or whatever, and the question caused a slight uneasiness, it seemed minimal enough to be dismissed as more or less irrelevant in this rapidly modernizing country. Then one evening, a group of four writers, one a Serb journalist friend of mine named Bogdan, invited me out for a drink after dinner. Two were poets, a Croatian and a Montenegrin, and one a Slovenian professor. We walked down the road to the local nightclub, which usually catered to tourists. The room was very large, like a ballroom, 
with maybe 50 bare plastic-covered tables, only a few of them occupied by stolid, square-headed alpine types. The cold night air was not noticeably heated. It had the feeling of a big Pittsburgh cafeteria between meals. <laughs> but presently, a three-piece band took, place, took places on a platform up front and began tootling American jazz standards. And a woman materialized and stood unsmilingly facing the audience. Small and compact, she wore a matching brown skirt and jacket and a shiny white rayon blouse, and in a business-like way, began undressing in what I was informed was to be a delightful striptease. <laughs> the scattered audience of men and their chunky women silently gulped beer and sipped slivovitz as the dancer removed her suit jacket, her shoes, her blouse, and her skirt until she stood looking out in her pink rayon slip and bra. It was all done rather antiseptically as if preparing for a medical examination. <laughs> Each garment tidily laid out and patted down on the piano bench, there being no pianist. <laughs> now she stepped out of her slip and in her panties did a few routine steps in approximate time to the music. She had very good legs. Things were heating up. <laughs> From somewhere, she picked up a heavy blue terry cloth robe and wrapped in it, she slipped off her bra and flashed one breast. My fellow writers broke off their dying conversation. I don't know what got into me to ask, can you tell from looking at her what nationality she is? <laughs> Bogdan, my Serb friend, depressed by his wife's absence in Belgrade, which had left him for the entire Congress week to the mercies of his melancholy mistress, glanced across the room at the stripper and gave his morose opinion. I would say she could be Croatian, he said. <laughs> Impossible, the Croatian poet laughed. <laughs> but with a sharpened eye and a surprising undertone of moral indignation, added, she could never be Croatian. Maybe Russian, yes, or Slovenian, but not Croatian. Slovenian, the mocking shout came from the Slovenian literature professor. <laughs> a tall, thin fellow with shoulder-length hair. Never. She has absolutely nothing Slovenian about her. Look how dark she is. I would say perhaps from the South, maybe Montenegrin. The dark-skinned Montenegrin poet sitting beside me simply exploded in a challenging, ha! <laughs> Earlier, he had been ethnically relaxed enough to tell a joke on his own people. Montenegrins were apparently famous for their admirably lethargic natures and one of them was walking down the street when he suddenly whipped out his revolver and swiveling about, shot a snail on the sidewalk behind him. His energetic Serbian friend asked what the hell he had done that for. Explained to Montenegrin, he's been following me all day. <laughs> but, when it came to the stripper, humor had noticeably evaporated, as each of the men kept handing her over to somebody else. In the midst of this warming discussion of ethnic types, I noticed that the dancer had left the platform in her thick terry cloth robe 
and with her clothes cradled neatly in her arms, was just about to pass us when I stuck out my arm and stopped her. May I ask where you come from? With a wan, polite smile, she replied, Dusseldorf. <laughs> and continued on her way. None of the writers allowed himself to laugh, although I thought one or two blushed at the irony of the situation. A bit tense, struggling awkwardly to reconstruct the earlier atmosphere of comradely warmth, we strolled back through the dark Balkan night, the president and four distinguished delegates of Penn, organized after World War I by H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, Henri Barbus, and other war-weary writers, as an attempt at applying the universalist tradition of literature to the melting down of those geographical and psychological national barriers for whose perpetuation humanity has always spent its noblest courage and a uniquely ferocious savagery. Thank you. Jamaica Kincaid, and um, I'm going to read two poems um, by a poet named Mac Dizda, and um, uh, oh, I should tell you that they're in a book called Why Bosnia, Writings on the Balkan War, and David Reese pieces in it also, and it's um, published by the Pamphleteers Press. The first poem is called The Seventh Day, The Book of Genesis. And I saw the water eating away the earth, the sun drinking the water, the earth belching out fire. I saw beast attacking beast, man spilling man's blood, I saw evil deeds on all sides. I saw the evil deeds thou didst create, for I had tasted of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. I saw for my, I saw for my eyes were opened, and I cried out, it is not good, it is not good, it is not. This is thy earth, is good only for the stones. I'm sorry, this thy earth is good only for the stones. Uh, the second poem is called The Blue River. No one knows where it is. We know little, but it is known. Behind the mountain, behind the valley, behind seven, behind eight, and even further and even worse, over the bitter, over the tortuous. Over the hawthorn, over the corpse, over the summer heat, over the oppression. Beyond foreboding, beyond doubt, behind nine, behind ten. And even deeper and even stronger, through silence, through darkness, where the roosters do not sing, where the sound of horn is not heard. And even worse and even madder, 
beyond sense, beyond God. There is one blue river, it is wide, it is deep, a hundred years wide, a, a thousand years deep. About the length do not even think, jetsam and flotsam on mending. There is one blue river, there is one blue river, we must cross the river. Thank you. My name is Paul Berman. I'm going to read a short statement. When I'm finished, the president of Penn American Center, Louis Begley, will come back on stage and make an announcement. Uh, the statement I'm going to read was written by the honorary vice president of Penn American Center, Salman Rushdie. These are now the words of Salman Rushdie. Three weeks ago, I was invited by the officers of the ex-Yugoslavia Pen Club to become an honorary member, and I accepted the invitation with pride. I hope they will not think me presumptuous if I say that as a result of this newly forged connection, I too can claim to be, in some sense, an exile from Sarajevo, even though it is a city I do not know and to which I have never been. There is a Sarajevo of the mind, an imagined Sarajevo, whose present and continuing ruination and torment exiles us all. That Sarajevo represents something like an ideal, a city in which the values of pluralism, tolerance, and coexistence have created a unique and resilient culture. In that Sarajevo, there actually exists that secularist Islam for which so many people are fighting elsewhere in the world. The people of that Sarajevo do not define themselves by faith or tribe, but simply and honorably as citizens. If that city is lost, then we are all its refugees. If the culture of Sarajevo dies, then we are all its orphans. The writers and artists of Sarajevo are therefore fighting for us as well as for themselves. On the airwaves of Radio Zid, or in the sessions of the recent Sarajevo Film Festival, what an achievement to stage a festival of over a hundred movies in the midst of such a war. The candle is kept burning. To define the people of Sarajevo simply as entities in need of basic supplies would be to visit upon them a second privation. By reducing them to mere statistical victimhood, it would deny them their personalities, their individuality, their idiosyncrasies, in short, their humanity. So whatever the world's governments and the UN Protection Force may say, let us insist that culture is as important to Sarajevo as medicines or food, that the people of Bosnia need cultural convoys too. Let us insist that in wartime, when the forces of inhumanity, inhumanity are at their height, culture is not a luxury and that the fight for the survival of the unique culture of Sarajevo is also a fight for what matters most to us about our own. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that while we have applauded Winston Marsala and my colleagues, that this is the saddest evening. We will all return to our homes and our normal existence and its normal problems. We'll prepare for holidays and think of presents for our beloved ones. Meanwhile, even as I now speak to you, shells are falling on Sarajevo, food and other necessities of life are scarce or totally unaffordable for Bosnian writers. Let us help them live through this cruel winter. Please put cash or unreasonably large checks in the baskets and in the contribution box that you will find during the intermission, which will follow my words. Uh, if you cannot donate now, please send a check uh, drawn to the order of a Pan American Center and marked as a contribution for the writers of Sarajevo. Now I have an important announcement to make in connection with contributions. Hamilton Fish, the president of the Public Concern Foundation, has told us that every dollar, every dollar raised above the ticket price this evening, whether contributed by individuals or by institutions, will be matched by the foundation up to a total of $5,000. Our special thanks go to the Public Concern Foundation, and my thanks go to you for every cent, for every dollar, for every hundred dollars that you will give us. Thank you very much. I'm Vlatko Dizdarevic, I came from Sarajevo. I cannot, ex I cannot explain what's going on there. But the only things that I can tell you is that I'm returning in Sarajevo in a couple of days. The world has chosen to view the siege of Bosnia and Herzegovina is an ethnic conflict, the inevitable result of hundreds of years of hatred between Muslims, Serbs, and Croats. For Europeans who identify themselves by an ethnic or national identity that was born of colonialism and has too often turned into fascism, this has a certain logic. For Americans, use it to an open, multi-ethnic society, this doesn't make much sense. For us, Bosnians, it makes no sense at all. Even the idea of tolerance makes little sense, because tolerance can only come between differing or conflicting groups. How can I, born a Muslim in Belgrade and married to a Bosnian woman of Serbian origin, even discuss this idea of tolerance. And so, it appears difficult for someone from Sarajevo to explain what has happened in Bosnia and Herzegovina, what has happened in Sarajevo, and what has happened in the former Yugoslavia. It seems difficult because 
amongst us in Sarajevo who had never considered the possibility of such divisions. Nothing has changed. Even now, in the cellar of Oslobodzhenes, devastated building, journalists of all the different nationalities of Bosnia, Orthodox Serbs, Catholics, Croats, Jewish and Muslims, continue to work together. This is also true for the Bosnian army, where there are the Serbs, Croats and Muslim officers and soldiers. The changes have taken place around Sarajevo and in the world beyond. We find it terrible funny when some, some foreign correspondents drawing under helmets, bulletproof vests, flak jackets and radio equipment are brought in by armored car to ask us this question. Will you ever be able to live together again? Even funnier are those who supposedly believe they have reached some understanding about our way of life and begun to speak of tolerance and coexistence to justify proof of, or, of our humanity and give them reason to protect us. We already know how species threatened with extinctions are protected in zoo and wildlife preserves. Unfortunately, it took us a long time to grasp that we are the problem. The problem is with those who came and go, those who shield us with flour, rice, and an old can of tuna from time to time in order to as their guilty conscience. It took us a long time to fathom why outsiders were so astonished at how we live and why they spoke so much of our tolerance as if it were something special. The idea of negotiating a peace in Bosnia by partition, partitioning our multinational society along religious and national lines could only have been conceived by people for whom living together with different nationalities must truly really be a remarkable achievement. A realistic plan to partition Bosnia is impossible to, to imagine. Excuse me, my dear Butros Gali, even with the help of Lord Owen, I cannot divorce my wife simply because we are of different nationalities. This is not simply a question, a question of divorce, but rather of genocide. Most scandalously, it is precisely under the protection and supervision of the United Nations and the European community that the genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina has been carried out. Only now, only now, after the illuminating experience of two past two years, have I begun to understand just what the future may hold for civil life everywhere. The things that pity narrow-minded politicians obsessed by myths and the legends and not the future of their own children have not grasped is that what is happening in Bosnia is much worse than our simply dying together there. The death of Sarajevo and Bosnia-Herzegovina is also the death of civilization on a human scale. Now I can finally grasp why they had no choice but to destroy Mostar's divine 500-year-old bridge and all the other bridges upriver and downriver from the mountains to the sea. These creatures of destruction systematically sustained by politicians of European leaders 
and quite sure that America will not lift a finger against them, act to fulfill their genetic dream, to be alone, isolated, and fenced in, never venturing, further defending themselves in their solitude from anyone who might bring in a new idea or a new challenge, preserving their own meats in this solitude, reviving them and reproducing themselves through them. In fact, everyone on this ill-fated planet can be divided into two groups. Those who build bridges, throw their life in order to move on into unknown and unjusted territory and those sized by panic and the sides of another shore, the unfamiliar and the arduous. Their imperative is to destroy every bridge around them and to remain alone. Even though the Berlin Wall has come down, it still exists in the minds of many. For us, the bridge in Mostar, no matter, no matter how many times they destroyed it, will remain in our souls. They will never be able to destroy as many bridges as we can build as long as we're able to bridge. This kind of a choice, ladies and gentlemen, can only be made in a historical moment when we evolve triumphs over good, when fascism overcomes democracy. So that's why we're glad to remain in Sarajevo, our city that we refuse to abandon, where we'll be happier dying in our ghettos like so many who have gone before us. We don't hate you, those of you outside Sarajevo. We just take pity of those among you who have accepted this latest form of totalitarianism which lies a civilization to the West. Most likely in Sarajevo, we are dying, we are dying together and in love. The fascists will die alone and in hatred, hated. This is no small difference between us. There are many different challenges to witness, and for a writer who is simultaneously a citizen, the question is, in what way do you witness? So I'm going to read from a poem which I believe marks a high watermark of achievement of a writer who witnessed with perfect vision and a nearly perfect poetic realization of that witness and vision. I'm going to read from Anna Akhmatova's Requiem. <clears throat> no, not under the vault of alien skies, 
and not under the shelter of alien wings. I was with my people then, there, where my people, unfortunately, were. Instead of a preface, in the terrible years of the terror, I spent 17 months in the prison lines of Leningrad. Once, someone recognized me. Then a woman with bluish lips standing behind me, who, of course, had never heard my name before, woke up from the stupor to which everyone had succumbed and whispered in my ear. Everyone spoke in whispers there. Can you describe this? And I answered, yes, I can. Then something that looked like a smile passed over what had once been her face. Prologue. That was when the ones who smiled were the dead, glad to be at rest. And like a useless appendage, Leningrad swung from its prisons. And when, senseless from torment, regiments of convicts marched, and the short songs of farewell were sung by locomotive whistles, the stars of death stood above us, and innocent Russia writhed under bloody boots and under the tires of the Black Mariahs. They led you away at dawn. I followed you like a mourner. In the dark front room, the children were crying. By the icon shelf, the candle was dying. On your lips was the icon's chill, the deathly sweat on your brow, unforgettable. Quietly flows the quiet dawn. Yellow moon slips into a home. He slips in with cap askew. He sees a shadow. Yellow moon, this woman is ill. This woman is alone, husband in the grave, son in prison. Say a prayer for me. No, it is not I. It is somebody else who is suffering. I would not have been able to bear what happened. Let them shroud it in black and let them carry off the lanterns. Night. For 17 months, I've been crying out, calling you home. I flung myself at the hangman's feet. You are my son and my horror. Everything is confused forever, and it's not clear to me who is a beast now, who is a man, how long before the execution. And there are only dusty flowers and the clicking of the censer and tracks from somewhere to nowhere and staring me straight in the eyes and threatening impending death is an enormous star. So they are staring again with the burning eyes of a hawk talking about your lofty cross and about death. And the stone word fell on my still living breast. Never mind, I was ready. I will manage somehow. Today I have so much to do. I must kill memory once and for all. I must turn my soul to stone. I must learn to live again. Unless summer's ardent rustling is like a festival outside my window. 
For a long time I've foreseen this brilliant day, deserted house, to death. You will come in any case, so why not now? I am waiting for you. I can't stand much more. I've put out the light and opened the door for you. So simple and miraculous. So come in any form you please. Burst in as a gas shell. Or like a gangster, steal in with a length of pipe. Or poison me with typhus fumes. Or be that fairy tale you've dreamed up. So sickeningly familiar to everyone in which I glimpse the top of a pale blue cap and the house attendant, white with fear. Now it doesn't matter anymore. The Yenise swirls, the north star shines, and the final horror dims the blue luster of beloved eyes. Now madness half shadows my soul with its wing and makes it drunk with fiery wine and beckons toward the black ravine. And I finally realize that I must give in overhearing myself raving as if it were someone else. And it does not allow me to take anything of mine with me, no matter how I plead with it, no matter how I supplicate, not the terrible eyes of my son, suffering turned to stone, not the day of the terror, not the sweet coolness of his hands, not the trembling shadow of the lindens, not the far-off, fragile sound of the final words of consolation. I'm going to read to you from three letters by Yuzeta Gradovic, who is an artist and a member of Sarajevo's Oblada Theater. In the spring of 1993, she came to the United States to collaborate with Joe Andres on a film. These letters are reprinted from a special issue of the magazine Lusitania called For Sarajevo. This is written to Joe Andres and Paula Gordon in New York of the 10th of February, 1993. Dear Joe, I will send you those drawings made here in Zagreb last month. I start to work again, as you see. I have a lot of similar things made during the war and now wait for a friend, a British pilot, who will bring me some of the rest. I gave all instructions to Moreau and left Sarajevo with one suitcase. I was working every day during this time of blockade doing a lot of drawings, photographs, paintings, and with no idea what for, with no reason, to save my mind, to find sense in the chaos, to have a proof of my presence in hell, to say, yes, I was there. I was working for our performance since November very seriously, and Joe, I know all this year we will work together. It is very difficult for me to express myself in your language. I forget mine for this time. I don't exaggerate. I forget mostly names of people and things. People told me the same, forgotten works, forgotten faces, forgotten movement. I was walking in a very strange way at first here in Zagreb in a freedom, no coordination between legs and arms and head and eyes. That was very funny and made me nervous. 
In Sarajevo, I was very afraid of death, but more of pain and torment, and I can't remember the time when I loved light, stars, moon, rain, sun, silence, as much as the last few months. I'm afraid I'm not able to express myself by words. This experience can't be verbal at all. Every night, lying in my bed, under the three blankets and sleeping bag, I had such a strong feeling how the human body is very, very soft, very unprotected. In full darkness, trembling during the mortar shelling, I could feel so clearly their intention to kill. This intention is so direct, so vulgar, and so simple at the same time. That is the real pornography. Sometimes nights were so quiet, so dark, I couldn't see my one hand, felt as if in a grave. Sarajevo now is a strange place, almost surreal. Burned houses, burned cars, big holes on the walls. Through the hole you can see somebody's apartment with table and chairs. Sometimes I was going, that means running, through the street in front of the Academy of Drama, which is very dangerous as a challenge to my destiny. Oblata Street, the one with big traffic, is empty now, deserted on the horizon. As you can see, burnt trams seems like they are coming. In full silence, you can hear only the sound of your own steps through the million pieces of broken glass. These little glasses sparkle under the sun, and some strange plants with beautiful flowers grow up in the middle of the street. I love Sarajevo more than ever. Dear Paula, this is Sarajevo, 30th November, earlier, 1992. Miro is working very hard. I try to help as I can. He prepares exhibitions in the destroyed place, the new Oblata space. We told you about this. There was a concert at our stage last month. It was fantastic. Perrault played saxophone, and he came straight from the front line. He had very dirty boots on stage, dressed in uniform with gun. All people here are impressed by my press card of WFMU. As a real journalist of WFMU, my dear news director, I will prepare something for you. I will make one videotape with all our friends, and we will make the audio tape for your station with all recent news from Sarajevo. You will have one exclusive report from hell very soon. I am working on my escape from here, and Moreau is staying. It is his final decision. This is the final letter, which is written to Michael Boonstra in New York. Dear Michael, I am writing this letter to you by candlelight. It's cold. There is no electricity. Moreau and I live since August at the Academy of Theater Arts in the basement with some of our friends. We stoke a fire to stay warm. We've already burned three sets in our stove. We've cooked on the bald soprano at Midsummer's Night Dream. Life here is very difficult, a struggle to survive. The Chetniks have us blockaded without food, water, and power, and on their television they show us an advertisement with tables full of flood, with swimming pools, with happy people while their voiceover follows the action, how all these things are now beyond your reach. Don't wait for help from anyone because it isn't coming. Separate yourselves as soon as possible. That's very cynical, isn't it? Very sad. But what can we do? We have to live through all of this. Moreau works hard. He's always walking in the city, and that is very dangerous. I am always in the basement. 
there are still many people in Sarajevo of different nationalities. It is a great and sad lie that Serbs are here in concentration camps. Here, everyone is equally hungry, equally cold, and equally dies. Many of our friends have died. Many buildings are destroyed. The old Austrian-built library is burned to the ground. Bogova Mosque has been struck by over 80 grenades. The Oriental Institute is burned. The old post office as well. The bakery, Skendia Sports Center, National Theater, Chamber Theater. And in that instance, two passerbys were killed. Thank God we are all healthy. We try to maintain our sanity and our will to live. My name is Simon Sharma, and I'm going to read you something from a different time and a different place, and yet I think not. Thomas Carlyle wrote his History of the French Revolution, as he said, out of a whirlwind of blackness and sorrow. And he knew that the one thing he had to accomplish was to find a language which could articulate both ecstasy and evil, and he struggled with the forms which might be adequate to that difficult task. Many of his contemporaries believed he had failed, and you may, as I read, realize that whatever language it is that Carlyle wrote in, it is only an approximation of English. Nonetheless, it should be read out loud, I believe, and if Carlyle were here, he would want to read it in what he called his Annandale Roar, in very broad Scottish, the which I shall not attempt to reproduce. A thousand and eighty-nine lie dead. Two hundred and sixty heaped carcasses on the Pont au Change itself, among which Robespierre, pleading afterwards, will nearly weep to reflect that there were said to be one slain innocent. One not two, O thou sea-green incorruptible, in the dim registers of the town hall, this I should say in 1792, September 1792, in the dim registers of the town hall which are preserved to this day, men read with a certain sickness of heart items and entries not usual in town books. To workers employed in preserving the salubrity of the air in the prisons and persons who presided over these dangerous operations, so much in various items, nearly 700 pounds sterling, to carters employed to the burying grounds of Clement, Montrouge, and Vaugirard at so much a journey per cart. This also is an entry. Then so many francs and sous for the necessary quantity of quicklime. Carts go along the streets full of stripped human corpses, thrown pell-mell, limbs sticking up. Seest thou that cold hand sticking up through the heaped embrace of brother corpses in its yellow paleness, in its cold rigor, the palm open towards heaven as if in dumb prayer, in expostulation, de profundis, take pity on the sons of men. Mercier saw it as he walked down the Rue Saint-Jacques from Montrouge on the morrow of the massacres. But not a hand, it was a foot, 
which he reckons still more significant. One understands not well why, or was it at the foot of one spurning heaven, rushing like a wild diver in disgust and despair towards the depths of annihilation. Even there shall his hand find thee and his right hand hold thee, surely for right, not for wrong, for good, not evil. I saw that foot, says Mercier. I shall know it again on the great day of judgment when the eternal throned on his thunders shall judge both kings and Septemberers. That a shriek of inarticulate horror rose over this thing, not only from French aristocrats and moderates, but from all Europe, and has prolonged itself to the present day, was most natural and right. The thing lay done, irrevocable, a thing to be counted beside some other things, which lie very black in our earth's annals, yet which will not erase therefrom. For man, as was remarked, has transcendentalisms in him, standing as he does, poor creature, every way in the confluence of infinitudes, a mystery to himself and others in the center of two eternities, of three immensities, in the intersection of primeval light with the everlasting dark. Thus there have been, especially by vehement tempers reduced to a state of desperation, very miserable things done. Sicilian vespers and 8,000 slaughtered in two hours are a known thing. Kings themselves, not in desperation, but only in difficulty, have sat hatching for a year and day their Bartholomew business. And then at the right moment, also on an autumn Sunday, this very bell, they say it was the identical metal of Saint-Germain-L'Auxerrois, was set appealing with effect. Nay, the same black boulders of these Paris prisons have seen prison massacres before now, men massacring countrymen, Burgundians massacring Armagnac, whom they had suddenly imprisoned, till as now there were piled heaps of carcasses and the streets ran red, the Maire Petillon at the time, speaking the austere language of the law and answered by the killers in old French, Maugré bien sire, sir, God's malison on your justice, your pity, your right reason. Cursed be of God, whoso shall have pity on these false, traitorous Armagnac. English dogs they are. They have destroyed us, wasted this realm of France, and sold it to the English. And so they slay and fling aside the slain to the extent of 1518, among whom are found four bishops of false and damnable counsel and two presidents of parliament. For though, for though it is not Satan's world that we live in, Satan always has his place in it underground properly and from time to time bursts up. Well may mankind shriek inarticulately, anathematizing as they can. There are actions of such emphasis that no shrieking can be too emphatic for them. Shriek ye, acted have they. To shriek, we say, when certain things are acted is proper and unavoidable. Nevertheless, articulate speech, not shrieking, is the faculty of man. When speech is not yet possible, let there be, with the shortest delay at least, silence. Silence accordingly in this 44th year of the business and 1836 of an era called Christian as Lucas Arnon is the thing 
we might recommend and practice, nay, instead of shrieking more, it were perhaps edifying to remark on the other side, what a singular thing customs in Latin mores are, and how fitly the virtue, virtus, manhood, or worth that is in a man is called his morality or customariness. Fell slaughter, one of the most authentic products of the pit, you would say, once give it customs, becomes war with laws of war and is customary and moral enough, and red individuals carry the tool of it, girt around their haunches, not without an air of pride, which do thou no wise blame, wild see, so long as it is dressed but in hodden or russet. And revolution, less frequent than war, has not yet got its laws of revolution, but the hodden or russet individuals are uncustomary. Oh, shrieking, beloved brother blockheads of mankind, let us close these wide mouths of ours. Let us cease shrieking and begin considering. Tony Kushner, and um, these are two uh, pieces from uh, a play of mine, A Bright Room Called Day, which is about the rise of fascism in Germany in 1933. Um, the first one is an autobiography of the devil. In brief, I recall a past, nomads seeming to them a petty desert tyrant with a petty tyrant's heart, cruel, greedy, and glistered with fat, fond of the flesh of children, Years pass in agrarian phase. I am rougher reptilian, a heart of mildew, dung heap dweller, fly merchant, cattle killer, friend of lunatics, excremental principle, the shit king, quaint children's stuff. Years pass, more years, refinement, scholasticism, increasingly metaphysical inclinations shape me as a negativity of void, the pain of loss, of irreconcilable separation from joy, from God. My heart, a black nullity, dull cavity from which no light escapes, not an is so much as an isn't, too ethereal, lacking bite. Years pass, years pile up. The last century, my heart was a piston pump. My veins, copper tubing, hot black oil coursed through them. Steam turbines roared, very strong, very hungry. Flesh of children and much, much more. Heady days, the best in eons. Even that grows old, even yet years hurtle by, and in this new century, still new. When questions of form are so hotly contested, my new form seems to be no form at all. I am simply unbelievable, non-objective, non-existent, displaced, stateless, a refugee. The accumulation of so much, the detritus of so many weary years, I have at last attained invisibility. It's not the danger that you see that's the danger. I become increasingly diffuse, like powdered gas taking to air, not less potent, but more spreading myself around. And then later in the play from a one-eyed Hungarian cinematographer um, on the night that Hitler is made chancellor. Listen, there is something calling. If you still retain a shred of decency, you can hear it. It's a dim, terrible voice that's calling a bass howl like a cow in a slaughterhouse, but far, far off. It is calling us to action, calling us to stand against the calamity, to spare nothing, 
not our blood nor our happiness nor our lives in the struggle to stop the dreadful day that's burning now in oil flames on the horizon. What makes the voice pathetic is that it doesn't know what kind of people it's reaching. Us. No one hears it except us. This age wanted heroes. It got us instead, carefully constructed but immobile, a whole generation of washouts. History says stand up and we totter and collapse, weeping, moved, but not sufficient. The best of us lacking, the most decent, not decent enough, the kindest, too cruel, the most loving, too full of hate, the wisest, too stupid, the fittest, unfit to take up the burden of the times. The enemy has a voice like seven thunders. What chance did that dim voice ever have? Marvel that anyone heard it instead of wondering why nobody did anything. Marvel that we heard it. We who have no right to hear it, no right, and it would be a mercy not to. But mercy is a thing. No one remembers its face anymore. The best would be that time would stop right now in this middling moment of awfulness before the very worst arrives. We'd all be spared more than telling. That would be best. You must be tired of seeing me, and I have to make yet another announcement. Somebody asked me, what are, we going to do? what are you going to do with the money that you're raking in tonight? And I, hope, I had hoped to make that clear uh, when I, I spoke to you first. We're going to send it to the writers of Sarajevo, and we will do it as fast and as joyously as we can. And now I'd like to read to you from my book, Wartime Lies. Tanya and I were learning the routine of communal apartment living, studying the street map of Warsaw, and rehearsing what she and I should and should not say at dining table. Panizis being an establishment where eating in one's room was frowned upon as messy and unfriendly. To make it easier for herself to stay out of Panizis' salon, Tanya quietly made it clear that whenever my health permitted, she and I would be busy with my lessons in our room. This was a reason for keeping to ourselves that could not be criticized or cause undue comment, and yet it reduced our contacts with Panizi. There was a special sort of social occasion, however, in addition to meals for which we could not fail to emerge and join Panizi and our fellow lodgers. Since mid-April, there had been fighting in the Warsaw Ghetto. At dinner table, the lodgers and Pani Zee talked of little else. Jews had actually attacked Germans, even forcing the SS unit that was sent to restore order to retreat. Some said that many of the SS had been killed, but now Germans were teaching the Jews a final lesson and at the end of every afternoon, the weather being very mild, we all went to the roof under Panizzi's direction and gathered to watch what she liked to call our fireworks. 
She claimed it was the first real entertainment the Germans had provided in all this sad time. Pani Z and her little band were not alone. It seemed that most of the tenants were on the roof, and the roofs of adjoining buildings were equally crowded. No wonder the view from Druga in the direction of Zamenhof in the ghetto was almost unobstructed and one could hear very well. People on the roof explained that Germans were using artillery. That was why the buildings in the ghetto were exploding and crumbling. Then they set them on fire so that black and orange clouds rose in the evening sky. One could not see it, but in what was left of the buildings and in whatever other holes they were hidden, Jews were burning. The incineration process was fortunate, our neighbors said. Otherwise, decaying corpses would have caused disease that rats could spread far beyond the ghetto. Occasional bets were made on how long it would be until the whole place was one black pile of rubble and whether any Jews would be left alive inside it. We did not remain in the house of Dwoga long enough to see these wagers settled. We left Panizis, according to Tanya's plan, moved twice to rooming houses for transients, and on the day when the SS removed the surviving Jews from the ghetto, we were already living on the other side of the Saxon gardens in the apartment of Pani Dumont. We continued to witness the daily spectacle from the roofs of our successive abodes, including Pani Dumont's, until it ended. All of Warsaw was watching with us, but the level of joviality was never again so high. The novelty wore off. Also, the view from Panizzi's roof had been exceptionally good. and uh, the format doesn't allow for well won't well for, uh, I don't have uh, that's the format doesn't allow uh, for my saying what I think about what's transpiring in the Bosnia or I could say just to use one sentence for that that I think while uh, physical tragedy physical destruction takes place in Bosnia, in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia, the ethical destruction takes place here. The only difference is that people like to be ethically destroyed. And, um, well, at any rate, well, I'm going to read to you two poems by W.H. Auden. The first is, is from 1932. Or what is that sound? Or what is that sound which that thrills the air down in the valley, drumming, drumming? Only the scarlet soldiers there, the soldiers coming. 
Or what is that light I see flashing so clear over the distance brightly, brightly? Only the sun and the weapons there as they step lightly. Or what are they doing with all that gear? What are they doing this morning, this morning? Only the usual maneuvers there, or perhaps a warning. Or why have they left the road down there? Why are they suddenly wheeling, wheeling? Perhaps they're changing the orders there. Why are you kneeling? Or haven't they stopped for the doctor's care? Haven't they reined the horses, the horses? Why, there are none of them wounded there, none of these forces. Or is it the parson they want with white hair? Is it the parson, is it, is it? No, they are passing his gateway there without a visit. Or it must be the farmer who lives so near. It must be the farmer, so cunning, so cunning. They have passed the farmyard already there, and now they're running. Or where are you going? Stay with me here. Were the vows you swore, deceiving, deceiving? No, I promise to love you, dear, but I must be leaving. Or it's broken the lock and splintered the door. Or it's the gate where they're turning, turning. The boots are heavy on the floor, and the eyes are burning. And where is the other one? Oh, hold a second. I had it marked, but I'm sorry. Mm. Yes, uh, the uh, second poem is, um, well, is known as, well, is, well, its usual title is The Refugee Blues. Say this city has 10 million souls. Some are living in mansions, some are living in holes. Yet there is no place for us, my dear. There is no place for us. Once we had a country and we thought it fair, Look at the atlas and you'll find it there. We cannot go there now, my dear. We can't go there now. In the village churchyard, there grows an old yew. Every spring it blossoms anew. Old passports can do that, my dear. Old passports can do that. The council banged the table and said, if you've got no passport, you're officially dead. But we're still alive, my dear. We're still alive. Went to a committee, they offered me a chair, asked me politely to return next year. But where shall we go today, my dear? But where shall we go today? Came to a public meeting. The speaker got up and said, if we'll let them in, they will steal our daily bread. He was talking of you and me, my dear. He was talking of you and me. Thought I heard the thunder rumbling in the sky. It was Hitler over Europe saying, they must die. We were in his mind, my dear. We were in his mind. So a poodle in a jacket, fastened with a pin. So a door opened and a cat let in. But they were not German Jews, my dear. But they were not German Jews. Went down to the harbor and stood up the key. Saw the fish swimming as if they were free. Only ten feet away, my dear. Only ten feet away. Walked through a wood. Saw the birds in the trees. They had no politicians and sung at the ease. They weren't the human race, my dear. They weren't the human race. Dreamed I saw a building with a thousand floors, a thousand windows, and a thousand doors. Not one of them was ours, my dear. Not one of them was ours. Stood on a great plain in the falling snow. 10,000 soldiers marched to and fro, looking for you and me, my dear, looking for you and me. Thank you. I have to collect the book from Joseph, excuse me.
I think um, Joseph Brodsky and I have agreed to read from Auden um, because I don't think any other poet in English in this century crystallizes the human conscience so clearly. The Shield of Achilles. She looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble, well-governed cities and ships upon untamed seas. But there on the shining metal his hands had put instead an artificial wilderness and a sky like lead. A plain without a future, bare and brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighborhood, nothing to eat and nowhere to sit down. Yet congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line without expression, waiting for a sign. Out of the air, a voice without a face, proved by statistics that some cause was just, in tones as dry and level as the place. No one was cheered and nothing was discussed. Column by column, in a cloud of dust, they marched away, enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. She looked over his shoulder for ritual pieties, white flower-garlanded heifers, libation and sacrifice. But there on the shining metal where the altar should have been, she saw by his flickering forge light quite another scene. Barbed wire enclosed an arbitrary spot where board officials lounged, one cracked a joke, and sentries sweated for the day was hot. A crowd of ordinary, decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three pale figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. The mass and majesty of this world, all that carries weight and always weighs the same lay in the hands of others. They were small and could not hope for help, and no help came. What their foes liked to do was done. Their shame was all the worst could wish. They lost their pride and died as men before their bodies died. She looked over his shoulder for athletes at their games, Men and women in a dance moving their sweet limbs quick, quick to music. But there on the shining shield his hands had set, no dancing floor but a weed-choked field. A ragged urchin, aimless and alone, loitered about that vacancy. A bird flew up to safety from his well-aimed stone. That girls raped that two boys, knife a third, were axioms to him, who'd never heard of any world where promises were kept, or one could weep because another wept. The thin-lipped armorer Hephaestus hobbled away. Thetis of the shining breasts cried out in dismay 
at what the God had wrought to please her son, the strong, iron-hearted, man-slaying Achilles, who would not live long. Leon Weaseltier. Um, one could never have supposed that after passing through so many trials, after being schooled by the skepticism of our times, we had so much left in our souls to be destroyed. Alexander Herzen wrote those words in 1848. They almost shut you up. They did not suppose that they had so much left in their souls to be destroyed. It is hard to know what to say at this late date in the history of atrocity, except to say, neither did we. Tonight we are gathered in this hall for the first time because it is not the first time and because it is not the last time. For it is here again, by it, I mean radical, state-sponsored, tribe-happy evil. By here, I mean Bosnia. And by Bosnia, I mean the place east of Croatia and west of Serbia, and the place that has been left in our souls to be destroyed. The enormity of this century has marked us with a vanity about darkness. We are the ones who saw, or we are the children of the ones who saw, a darkness that would never come again. A perverse kind of pride could even be found in an experience of finality. And so never again, some of us used to cry about the radical, state-sponsored, tribe-happy evil that destroyed the Jews of Europe a generation ago. Watching Bosnia from this lucky but cheerless distance, I now understand the secret attraction of that slogan. It flattered us that we had hit bottom, and at the same time, it held out the prospect of a reillusionment. For the mind might learn to accommodate such crimes if it could be certain that they happened only once, and certain, too, that they would be received as a warning. But they have not been received as a warning. They have been received as a precedent. And so we have been robbed of our clarity, and of the certainty that we had identified a climax. For that part of the world that we congratulate as the West, the post-Holocaust honeymoon is over. It is one of the consequences of the Serbian terror in Bosnia that we may never again say never again. Thus we must be careful tonight not to express what we warmly call outrage, if outrage is an expression of surprise. The moral sense can no longer survive if it is surprisable. The will to resist evil must be as grim and as disabused and as perdurable as the will to commit evil. Sarajevo is not an occasion for sentiment. Sarajevo is an occasion for politics. But we have a president who prefers feeling deeply to acting strongly, and a secretary of state who takes a pinstriped approach to genocide. My, myself, I see no practical difference between the remorsefulness of Bill Clinton 
and the remorselessness of George Bush, John Major, Boris Yeltsin, or Boutros Boutros Ghali. Or more to the point, I do not see that Milosevic sees any difference. For we should be clear, Milosevic is a monster who could have been stopped. The condign response to Milosevic's aggression is not a tragic sense of life. It is political and military action. Nor has the hour for political and military action passed. A partition in which one of the parties is defenseless is not a peace. It is a pause in a war. If we do not arm the Bosnians, then the Serbians will continue to meet no resistance except the snow. And the snow, like the language of diplomats, melts. Of course, there is a difference between the European excruciations of the 1990s and the European excruciations of the 1940s. But the difference is primarily quantitative. It is important to remember, therefore, that genocide is not quantitatively defined. Before millions of Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and dissenters were killed in Europe, thousands of them were killed. And before thousands of them were killed, hundreds of them were killed. And before hundreds of them were killed, tens of them were killed. And it was the whole time, with every bullet fired and every switch thrown, genocide. Indeed, it is possible to kill a single man or a single woman and still be guilty of genocide if you kill him or her as the beginning or the middle or the end of the extinction of the group to which he or she belongs, if killing is also cleansing. Historically speaking, of course, there is nothing dirtier than cleansing. And this time, the spectacle of history at its dirtiest is everywhere. This is the first genocide that has been caught by television. And we know that the President of the United States watches television. Clinton is not Milosevic's enemy. He is Milosevic's audience. The rabbis taught many centuries ago, the makom she'en anashim hishtadel liot ish. Literally translated and a little archaically, those words mean, where men are wanting, be a man. Progressively translated and with greater philosophical precision, the words mean, where the courage to act rightly is wanting, have the courage to act rightly. So far, so far our leaders have displayed no such courage. They are not bad men. They merely make goodness look like weakness. And for this they will be judged, because they have failed to grasp that those who would destroy what is left in our souls to be destroyed deserve themselves to be destroyed. Thank you. Finally, a poem by Czeslaw Milos, Sarajevo. Now, when a revolution is rarely needed, those who were once fervent are cool. While a country raped and murdered calls for help from the Europe it trusted. While statesmen choose villainy and no voice is raised to call it by its name. It was a sham, 
the rebellion of the young who cried for a new earth. And that generation has written the verdict on itself, listening with indifference to the cries of those who perish because they are just barbarians killing each other. And the lives of the well-fed are worth more than the lives of the starving. It is revealed now that their Europe has been since the beginning a deception for its faith and its foundation is nothingness. Nothingness, as the prophets keep saying, brings forth only nothingness. They will be led once again like cattle to slaughter. Let them tremble and at the last moment let them comprehend that the word Sarajevo from now on will mean the destruction of their sons and the debasement of their daughters. They have prepared it by repeating, we at least are safe, unaware that what will strike them ripens within them.